Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022, and you've joined us for our very first edition of National Security This Week for 2022. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. When we started this show a year ago, I promised we'd cover topics that are important issues related to American national security that often don't get much coverage in the press. Areas of the world where American interests are at stake, but but those crises don't rise to the level that they probably should uh, and certainly could become a major crisis for America if they were left unchecked. We have a show on such a topic today. Our focus this morning will be on the Balkans. It's an area of Europe that went through major upheaval in the democratization process in the 1990s. Sadly, many many areas of the Balkans remain a, a powder keg, and ethnic strife bubbles just below the surface. With us to discuss the Balkans is Alan Carlson, a retired Foreign Service officer from the U.S. Department of State. Alan J. Carlson served as a Foreign Service officer for 25 years, retiring in 2012. In 1991-92, he coordinated the U.S. government's approach to U.N. peacekeeping in the former Yugoslavia. In 1999, he was assigned as the political military officer to the U.S. Embassy in Sarajevo, working with the Bosnian governments and the international community to integrate the militaries, reduce landmine contamination, and address the threat of terrorism. From 2002 to 2004, he was in Washington, working again on U.N. peacekeeping and sanctions, and he returned to the Balkans in 2004 as the number two officer at the U.S. consulate, later the embassy, in Podgorica, where he played a leading role in the peaceful vote leading to the renewed independence of Montenegro. After serving as the senior advisor to the U.S. delegation at the Geneva Conference on Disarmament, Allen finished his career as a senior Balkans analyst for the State Department's Intelligence and Research Bureau, or INR. Allen's foreign languages include Danish, Serbo-Croatian, French, and a smattering of Jamaican patois. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in U.S. History and a, and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Minnesota and a Master's of Military Studies from the Marine Corps University at Quantico. Alan Carlson lives in Stillwater with his wife, Tessa, and their three cats. Alan Carlson, welcome to National Security This Week. It's great to have you in the studio. It's great to be here, John. We have a lot to cover today. I, I, I was glad to see that you were able to make the drive down from Stillwater. Uh, I, I was mentioning to you when, before we got on the radio how many uh, trucks and cars I saw spun out on 35. So <laughs> it, was, it was quite the, uh, quite the drive down, I'm sure, from Stillwater for you. It was, but it was manageable. And Northfield Trail is a great little road. All right. So we have, uh, we have a lot to cover today, but I do want to start the show getting a little bit more uh, on your background, your personal experiences and whatnot, especially related to the Balkans. Can you tell us just a little bit more about your, your personal time spent in the Balkans? Certainly. Um, I kind of backed into the Balkans. Uh, I was working in uh, Washington, D.C. on my second tour for John Bolton, of all people, All right. <laughs> uh, on UN Matters, UN Security Council. And I was given Europe, in, which at summer 1990 looked to be a very quiet uh, (laughs) agenda. Uh, That wasn't the case. Um, The the war in Slovenia broke out, the war in Croatia. Uh, We deployed uh, the UN Protection Force, UN UNPROFOR, a peacekeeping force to Croatia and then Bosnia. Um, And then I got away from the issue for a while. I went to the Marine Corps Command Staff College, got a little more knowledge on the military, and the embassy was looking. Embassy in Sarajevo was looking for someone who could um, talk to the military there. Yeah, and that's how I ended up in in, in Bosnia. Okay, I, you did clearly spend a, a good portion of your career focused on the Balkans. I did. Um, so three years in Sarajevo, uh, working on unifying the militaries, uh, was a big part of my uh, uh, portfolio. Um, Went back to Washington, did a little more peacekeeping and uh, sanctions work. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and then uh, return to Montenegro uh, in time to uh, participate in the renewed independence of that country. Yeah, uh, and, and I will say that when 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 we were preparing for this show, uh, I did happen to notice that uh, you and I actually overlapped in Bosnia at the same time. You had reported to the uh, to the embassy there in Sarajevo, and I was running. Uh, Operations up in uh, in northern the, the multinational district north or MND north Correct. that the U.S. was responsible right. for in the northern part of uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, so so we are veterans of the same time period in, in Bosnia. But I have more time to. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Uh, maybe you could explain to the audience uh, what area of Europe comprises what is commonly referred to as the Balkans. I mean, what what nations are part of that region? Well, um, what unifies the Balkans really is a history of. Um, uh, political disunity that opened them up to um, influence by outside powers, most notably the Ottoman Empire about 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, either they were occupied by uh, the Ottomans uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries, or they're, um, they were heavily influenced by the existence of the Ottoman Empire coming out of Turkey. Yeah, And so for a lot of people, they think of the Balkans, oh, that's former Yugoslavia. Well, that's the Western Balkans. And that's a lot. That's a big part of it, especially sure. numerically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have Albania. And then to um, the east, you have Romania and uh, Bulgaria as well. Yeah. Um, so you have all of the states of former Yugoslavia, running north to south, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, um, uh, Montenegro, and then go over Macedonia, Kosovo and Serbia. Mm-hmm. So a lot of countries there. And then a lot of people will also include um, uh, Greece and Turkey, but that's not an area that, that I ever covered. No, no. I, and even, I mean, I think uh, if you just take a look at the unique nature of, of what Greece and Turkey are as countries, historically speaking, I, I think you'd <laughs> it'd be a challenge to sort of draw the conclusion that they're part of the Balkans. Right. Yeah. So when we hear that term, the Balkans, people most often just think about the former Yugoslavia. I mean, because that's kind of the way the press portrays it, uh, which is not entirely accurate. Uh, What can you tell us about the kind of the ethnic and and cultural differences in the region? Maybe start with the ethnic strife that's been part of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and what allegiances exist today in the region. Absolutely. Um, What you really have is three large... Large ethnic groups, uh, the Slavic uh, group, which runs through Yugoslavia and over into Bulgaria, mm-hmm. um, the Albanians in Albania itself and in Kosovo, mm-hmm. and then they filter into, um, and then on, the Romanians, who are more of a, they view themselves as a Latin people, um, the most eastern uh, country of Western Europe. Yeah. Um, but even within the Slavics, you have further divides because on top of this ethnic um, division and ethnic groupings, you have religious groupings. Right. You have the re- religious overlay. Uh, Catholicism coming in from the north and west, um, orthodoxy uh, across the rest of it, and then an overlay on top of the overlay of Islam. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and culturally, uh, from what I experienced when I was there, Long, long memories about uh, things that have happened in the past. Extremely long memories. Uh, there is a uh, a quote that the Balkans generates more history than it can can consume. <laughs> when I was there in '99, uh, when I first showed up for my rotation into Bosnia, uh, I remember uh, speaking with some Serbs, uh, Bosnian Serbs. I have to mm-hmm. clarify that because that not the same as Serbia Serbs. Uh, and they were still, it was right around the anniversary, I think, of the 710th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo Polja. 600th. 600th, okay. So they were still angry about having lost to the Turks 600 Absolutely. years earlier. <laughs> so. Well, and, and, and that's also a part of the um, the strife uh, and the history, and because a lot of this is myth-making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because, in fact, the, Kos- the Battle of Kosovo in 1389 was pretty much a tie. Uh, the leaders on both sides died, and uh, nothing really happened. But it's mythically very important for the Serb people. Yeah. Could Could you talk a little bit more about kind of that, the conflict uh, it, between those ethnic uh, groups that sort of caused the, the the collapse of the former Yugoslavia in many regards? I mean, there was a lot of things that were happening to tear that uh, that country apart. Um, well. From 1945 until 1980, of course, Tito uh, had unified um, Yugoslavia. 
uh, both because he's a brilliant politician, able to play off one faction against right. the other, yeah. uh, and also because he's very brutal against the ones who don't want to be played played yeah. off. Yeah. Um, but after Tito left the scene in 1980, um, the Serbs, who are numerically um, the largest part of uh, Yugoslavia and hold all of the central uh, levers, um, decided that they were going to have more of a greater Serbia and less of a Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um, well, this didn't sit well with the Slovenes, the Croats, later the Bosnians, later the, Mas- the Macedonian people, mm-hmm. and then also the Kosovars. Um, and as Milosevic became more heavy-handed, the resistance increased to the point of uh, war breaking out in 1991. Yeah, full-blown civil war. Full-blown civil war. Yeah. And just spread from Slovenia into Croatia, down into Bosnia. Um, it was held off from Macedonia through uh, able deployment of peacekeeping forces. Mm-hmm. And then um, that was all tamped down in 95 and then re- reappeared in Kosovo in 99. Yeah. Again, because Milosevic was um, right. pushing. Exactly. So the Dayton Accords sort of brought sort of a temporary relief to the Civil War and, and created uh, sort of a s- relatively stable situation, 95, 96 temp- Dayton Accords? Um, yeah, the 95, 96 Dayton Accords, again, ended the wars in Croatia and Bosnia mm-hmm. and um, brought in large, uh, increased the size of the UN peacekeeping force in Croatia and brought in the very large and unique, at that time, NATO uh, peacekeeping force, I-4, 60,000 heavily armed troops. Right. Um, and that really did cl- clamp down on the um, uh, civil conflict in Bosnia. But Kosovo was not addressed by Dayton. Right, exactly. Uh, the other thing that I noted when I was there operating in a uh, multinational district north, crossing back and forth between uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and into the Republika Srpska were the plethora of minefields all over the place. And I, yes. know, I know it from your uh, your bio that you worked a good bit on the minefield issue. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how big of a problem that was? Um, when I was there, which is 99, which was when you were there, mm-hmm. uh, it was either the first or second largest problem in the world. It was huge. It was huge. Yeah. Um, now, because of mine safety education, there weren't that many casualties, but it was impairing um, transport and especially agriculture. Right, exactly. And certainly tourism. Right. <laughs> um, it's tough to go camping if you don't know there's a mine, if there's a minefield or not. Yeah, and I will say that uh, of all the places I was deployed or visited throughout my Navy career and even in my civilian uh, you know, tourism days, I was always struck every time I was driving around throughout the mountain ranges in the Balkans area there how beautiful that place was. But you couldn't go anywhere because there you were minefields could, everywhere. You could not go anywhere. Uh, it took uh, Because I was so heavily involved in, in the mine clearance uh, issues, it took me 18 months after the end of that tour before I could step off pavement in the United States. <laughs> and, felt so, and felt safe. And yeah. felt safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired State Department Foreign Service Officer Alan Carlson, and we're discussing the Balkans. Uh, Alan, let's get into the kind of the political and economic issues of the modern-day Balkans. Absolutely. Uh, how, how would you characterize the political parties that vie for power in the many countries of the Balkans? I mean, do these political parties lean toward uh, the kinds of policies that are similar to the Western liberal democracies, uh, or are they more nationalist or authoritarian-leaning, as we've seen happen in, say, Poland? Um, the short answer is yes, all, all of the above. <laughs> okay, so maybe you could break it down for us. Um, you have um, the nationalist parties who um, first came to power uh, after the end of the Cold War mm-hmm. um, because that was kind of the uh, natural reaction to the s- socialist and communist parties that had been in, in control. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there was a desire to put your national identity at the forefront, including uh, in your politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a lot of nationalist parties there. Um at the same time, you have the former communist parties turning themselves into socialists and social democrats and trying to move off the eastern um, roots of the old Warsaw Pact uh, and into a more western social democracy model. Yeah. And then, as we've seen more recently, you've had a growth in very western-type uh, parties, green parties, liberal parties, progressive parties, um, 
And so now you have this uh, mix. And because of how, uh, because these are parliamentary systems and low thresholds to get into parliament, you've got lots of parties, even in small countries like Montenegro. So the critical nature of politics in that region is is coalition building in their parliaments. Absolutely true. Uh, It is coalition building. Uh, Even um, the large major parties uh, see it necessary um, to reach out to uh, the smaller parties, even in an informal coalition, uh, will happen. Okay. And and where are the countries that sort of nationalism has taken root in the Balkans? the strongest nationalism really um, now is in the Slavic countries, mm-hmm. uh, Croatia, where the old uh, HDZ uh, is still very dominant. Okay. Um, in um, in Bosnia itself, even though the Bosnian Serb part made Bosnian Serb parties proclaim themselves social democrats, they're very uh, ethnically national. Yeah. Uh, so are um, so are their Bosnian Croat counterparts, uh, and in Bulgaria, um, it's very important to be a Bulgarian in Bulgaria. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a frequent accusation of your opponent is, "Well, you're not a real Bulgarian." Okay. Um, the Albanian parties are very uh, are very Albanian. The, the the politicians are very Albanian, but it's not a driving force for them. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, does any of the influence from, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, does that bleed into the Balkans much? or Not a whole lot. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. You would think it would. Uh, it's right adjacent there to to uh, Serbia. Right. Um, and a lot of the northern part of Serbia used to be Hungary. Yeah. Uh, you think there'd be a, a dynamic there. Um, there's not a whole lot to be perceived there. Huh. So uh, most political decisions, from what I've seen, they, they tend to be made based on economic needs. I mean, e- economics really drives a lot of uh, decision-making. And, and let's talk about a little bit about the economic conditions in the Balkans. Right. Uh, and maybe concentrate on the Balkan countries with the larger economies first, and maybe talk about some of the smaller ones after. What, what do you see as the, kind of the key economic sectors in the Balkans, and who controls those sectors? Um, well, the key economic the largest country, of course, is Romania. Um, and uh, it, like Bulgaria, has been a member of the EU since 2007. Okay. And so that has been a great benefit to its economy. Um, it has access to, you know, very good access to a lot of markets. Um now, for because, uh, because of its EU connection, because of its EU connections, okay, all right, um, it's simply much easier if, if you're part of the right <laughs> the trade the trade union part of the trade union, <laughs> yeah. And so, a lot of these countries, you know, they're trading with um, primarily Germany, uh, kind of secondarily Italy. Those are the big markets, of both imports and exports, uh, for for the Balkans. Okay, um, and on the eastern side of the Balkans. Uh, it's a lot of traditional um, uh, businesses. Um, you know, a lot of trade in goods uh, is dominating. Uh, Romania, for example, is a big manufacturer of car components and cars themselves. Okay. Uh, the, the car company there, which no Americans have ever heard of, Dacia, mm, yeah. uh, produced nearly 700,000 vehicles before COVID annually. Okay. That's pretty good. That's a lot of vehicles. Yeah. Um, Bulgaria... Uh, is still a little further back, um, uh, but they're again they're exporting, um, for example, refined petroleum, bringing yeah. in uh, crude petroleum, exporting uh, refined. That's that uh, Ploesti oil fields area, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually in Romania, but oh, okay. uh, but yeah. but the uh, a lot of the refining has moved down to Bulgaria. Okay, all right. Um, now in the Adriatic coast of the Balkans, that's Croatia. Um, Croatia, a little bit uh, Bosnia, Montenegro, Albania. The big um, driver of the economy, if you're looking at just one single sector, is tourism. Yeah. Uh, Having been on the Adriatic coast, I'm sure you have too. It is a gorgeous area of the world. No, no, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, One of my favorite cities in the world is Kotor in Montenegro. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is also the setting for Game of Thrones, I'm told. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I did see some of the scenes, the sets in uh, Game of Thrones that looked rather familiar to me. <laughs> um, and so um, 
a lot of, and this is, uh, especially for the Western Balkans, a break with the Yugoslav past. Okay. Because Tito was looking to set up an autarkic state where um, the Yugoslav state could satisfy all the needs of its people within its boundaries. And so it set up industries which really don't function that well. Okay. Uh, an example being the aluminum uh, plant in Montenegro. Okay. Combinat uh, Alumina Podgorica. Aluminum factory of Podgorica. Yeah. Um, now, it, there is big bauxite mines in Montenegro, mm-hmm. so that's good. Yeah, well, and mining is big. In, in and mining is big. Yeah. Uh, and so that was very beneficial. But the electricity that you need to actually make aluminum is very expensive in Montenegro. And so when Montenegro looked to privatize that plant, um, when we looked to uh, talk to North American potential buyers, you know, the Reynolds, the Alcoas, they kind of went, no, no, we're not touching this. <laughs> this is not profitable. And, in fact, it sold to a uh, big Russian uh, oligarch, uh, Oleg Deripaska. Okay, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. The more power the Russian oligarchs get, yes. Um, but... He was so unhappy with um, that plant, he sold it now, seven years ago, to a, um, a Montenegrin. Okay. Who's now having difficulty getting electricity for a decent price. <laughs> yeah. So, you, we, so we just mentioned that you know, mining is important. Uh, Serbia uh, clearly has a really interesting economic challenges. I mean, they took a major Absolutely. hit during the NATO air campaign in 99. Uh, destroyed a lot of the infrastructure in Serbia uh, due to what was happening uh, in Kosovo at the time. Right. Uh, and Serbia has been sort of this linchpin country in the Balkans right. for all of the kind of security and political and even economic challenges that are going on. Uh, I do know that right now uh, Serbia, I mean, they have mines, uh, lithium mines, for instance, in mm-hmm. Serbia that are, that are very important. Uh, but there's Chinese-owned steel mills and whatnot and things like that in the area. Uh, so there's some some interesting things happening in <clears throat> Serbia that that impact the broader uh, EU and even the NATO uh, construct. Uh, I, I would ask. I would also suggest. You know, I have an article here that I that I had pulled off recently. Uh, Vietnamese workers at a Chinese factory right. in Serbia are crying for help. Right. Uh, their working conditions are so horrific, and nobody in the Serbian government is lifting a finger to help them. Uh, presumably because Serbia wants to have a closer relationship with China. Uh, yeah. So that's a that's a very good observation. Um, China, uh, as is elsewhere in the world, is looking to make inroads um, and uh, acquire infrastructure and basic industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's certainly true in the Balkans. Yeah. Um, a, a lot. Again, a lot of these this infrastructure is not attractive to Western firms to right, build. Right. Um, well, I mean, it's almost like the you have nothing but downside as a foreign direct investment opportunity into the Balkans because there's all this sort of just under the surface ethnic strife that uh, is just waiting to break out again. Correct. And um, while the Europeans and the United States are, are working with the countries to incre- to increase the attractiveness of these countries for foreign direct investment, mm-hmm. uh, to increase the rule of law, um it's a difficult hurdle to get over for these countries, uh, in part because what we see with um, judges, um, you don't have to go up to the judge and say, uh, hey, can you rule in my favor? Here's a little money for you. The judge knows, oh, you're my cousin's best friend's um, uh, best man. Mm-hmm. I know how to rule in this case. Right. And so this goes back to that very long memories and these connections, very long memories. these ethnic connections that exist and whatnot. That's uh, very interesting. So that the also the other impact that Serbia has, uh, you know, on say Bosnian Serbs. So part of the Dayton right. Accords was the establishment of the Republika Srpska, right. uh, which was sort of a, a Bosnian Serb enclave of the former Greater Bosnia Herzegovina, and they just recently voted to uh, withdraw from the basically from the Dayton Accords agreements. Well, they voted again. Yeah. To uh, and what they voted to do was. Um, Limit and withdraw participation in the joint institutions of the broader Bosnian state. Yeah. Um, there's a couple observations to make about this. One, it's not the first time they've said this. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, those um, uh, decisions they voted on and passed have no legal effect. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, they're not even supposed to 
even what effect they do have is not supposed to come into play for another five months from from now. Yeah, but there's a psychological impact. There is a psychological impact. Yeah. (laughs) Now there is also an impact, as you said, there's a connection between the Serbs in Serbia and the Bosnian Serbs. Yeah. And here. you're seeing reports that the president of Serbia, Alexander Vukic, has gone to the president, uh, well, the senior um, Bosnian Serb politician, um, Milorad Dodik, and said, you're not doing this. Um, it's destabilizing the situation, and we certainly don't want you in, in our country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have enough problems. We have enough problems of our, of our, our own. own yeah. um, and this is what Dodik hears a lot from Vucic over the past uh, decade. Yeah. So I said all, it, a lot of it goes back to that, that economic challenges and the political decisions that are made often linked to economics. Uh, how important are imports and exports in the modern economy in the Balkans? Um, they're, they play a very large part. Okay. Um, again, there was an attempt at autarky, um, and it sort of worked at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want consumer goods... You have to uh, import from elsewhere. You're going to import from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, if you want tourists, you import from elsewhere. If you want to go on on tour uh, elsewhere as a tourist, you will go elsewhere as a tourist. Yeah. Um, again, uh, there is a, a lot of trade in and back and forth, uh, and some of it, uh, you know, will be even intercorporation. Uh, Volkswagen will produce parts in um, in Bosnia and bring them up to their plants elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens with a lot of the car manufacturers uh, throughout Europe. Um, so is this a function of the EU sort of looking down to the Balkans and saying, look, we saw this strife during the de- democratization process and we know we need to help with economic development in the region? So the EU has moved in there with a lot of uh, opportunities for, for people to get skilled labor jobs? Some of it's that. Less of it than that, than I think would be good for the Balkans. Okay. Um, a lot of it is um, we can turn a better profit if we uh, outsource to the Balkans. Because the labor is so much because cheaper. Because the labor is cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. Fair um, enough. <laughs> it has the same effect. The driver's a little different. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and how are the Balkan nations faring as, as members of the EU in, in the market system? I mean, is there... Is their quality of life coming up? Is their yearly earnings growing being part of the EU? Well, the only two other, well, the three that are members of the EU are Romania, Bulgaria, and Croatia. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm going to skip Slovenia here. Slovenia is more of a Western European state now. Pretty much. Pretty much, right. Uh, especially for Romania, the increase in their standard of living has been dramatic. Okay. Uh, but in part because uh, they've had less of the additional civil strife in Romania. Right. Uh, they had a very sharp break from Ceausescu. <laughs> from Ceausescu, <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that got a lot of out of it out of their system. Yeah, a lot of anger in that country. Over there was a Ceausescu lot of anger, <laughs> and there's still a lot of ethnic tension uh, tension between the Romanians and the Hungarians, mm-hmm. Romanians and Bulgarians. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't drive their politics. It doesn't drive their economics. Okay, and they didn't have the long sustained downturn. Uh, I mean, you mentioned. Um, the air campaign against Serbia, harming Serbia's industry. But even a bigger uh, harm was their self-inflicted hyperinflation. Yeah, right. Bad management of the economy. Very bad management and a lot of uh, crony capitalism. So why is it that uh, that the EU is still holding Serbia at, kind of at arm's length to become a full member of the, of the European Union? Um, I think one of the—well— the technical drivers are, again, this uh, missing the rule of law okay, uh, and, and assuring that uh, investments are treated fairly. But the rule of law for Serbia goes further and looks at uh, how they have approached um, the wars. Yeah. An acknowledgement of what happened, uh, for example, the, the genocide in Srebrenica in 95. Right, right. Um, and... Um, Remember that Alexander Vucic, the president of Serbia, was in the Milosevic cabinet, okay. and uh, he was in charge of media relations, and he still takes that approach to media now, which is, you're going to say nice things about me, or you're not going to say anything at all. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I've seen you know interviews uh, on the news, uh, BBC and whatnot, uh, talking to some of these uh, Serbian politicians, right. and, and they refuse, even the Bosnian Serb 
politicians. They refused to take any responsibility for what happened during during the Civil War and the slaughter of uh, the ethnic cleansing that they themselves claimed they were doing uh, to clear areas away to make it safer for Serbs. Correct. And so that that intransigence is is what's really slowing up the whole process of integration? That is slowing up a lot of the process of integration. Uh, In Montenegro, they were pushed, uh, equally pushed, to recognize their role in the Civil War because Montenegro in the 92-95 era was on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, they participated in the shelling of Dubrovnik. Right. But they've acknowledged that. And even the uh, very nationalist parts of the current coalition government have said, we're not going to take back our acknowledgments. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, and so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired State Department Foreign Service Officer Alan Carlson, and we're discussing the Balkans. Uh, Alan, let's go ahead and dive into the, I guess, the security situation in the Balkans, because, I mean, it's it's a mess politically. Uh, there are some good success stories economically, but the whole region is sort of this, like we mentioned in the beginning, it's a powder keg in many regards. A lot of ethnic strife that's taking place kind of below the surface, impacting sort of the local uh, political scene. But then you have, like you mentioned, an invitation from those countries because they're relatively weak to, to larger powers outside of the region who are influencing the actions of what's happening in the region. And that's that's probably going to be the, one of the most interesting parts of our discussion today. So I'll ask this right up front. Which of the Balkan nations are under Russia's sway? Um, which countries are under Russia's sway? Um, to the extent that any of them are, uh, it would be Serbia. Mm-hmm. And again, we're looking at history and Pons and the old and the czarist policies of Ponslavism. Um, you can't uh, escape uh, history in the Balkans. Right. Um, even if uh, Bismarck was right and the entire Balkans are not worth the bones of one dead Pomeranian grenadier. <laughs> Um, there are a lot of people who disagree with the, with the old chancellor yeah. and they want to have parts, uh, or all of the, the Balkans and Russia has a lot of, of interest, uh, both directly because of Ponslavism and, uh, identification between, uh, themselves and the people there, mm-hmm. uh, a, a linguistic similarity. Yeah. Uh, when my Serb equations top notch, I can follow most Russian discussions. Okay. Um, so there's a strong similarity there, yeah. which eases that. Um, added to that is uh, Putin's desire to keep poking his eye in the West. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of what you have in the Balkans now are not creations of the Russians and the Soviet Union, but creations of the West and the United States. Mm-hmm. And he kind of and he wants to de- derail that. Right. It sort of goes back to this discussion that we've had throughout all of 2021 about Russia and what Putin's goal is, right. is to sort of destabilize the West, poke holes in liberal democracy uh, to show how uh, weak it really is and thus create greater stature at home uh, in Russia and less uh, less rejection of, of his rule, basically, I think is a right. good way to, to phrase it. Uh, I, I, I had I did a bunch of research before we had our show, and I looked at the fact that uh, the Russians are doing some rather interesting things trying to help undermine those Dayton Accords, right. and they're sending a lot of weapons uh, to Serbia, which Correct. is a little concerning. It is concerning, um, and uh, Serbia is uh, the most resistant to um, what— the West would see as the other piece of Western integration. The first piece is EU integration, and Serbia wants that. Yeah. The other piece is NATO integration. Russia does not want that. Russia doesn't want that, <laughs> and the current Serbian leadership does not want that. Yeah, which is interesting. It is interesting. Um, I mean, it, we, uh, as you mentioned, I have a history degree. Right. Go back to World War I. Yeah. Um, the West entered World War I, on the side of Serbia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so this is uh, an interesting dynamic that NATO is so unpopular. Uh, even in Montenegro, um, which is a member now of NATO since 2017, uh, there is a lot of um, dislike of NATO. It's not a popular organization in Montenegro. 
Now, again, the, national, the current coalition government has said, we're not touching that. We're staying in NATO. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean we have to like it. Yeah, right, right. So on this uh, arms deal, uh, Russians just recently uh, handed over to Serbia uh, a bunch of main battle tanks, armored personnel carriers. Uh, Serbia has recently purchased the Russian uh, Pantsir air defense system, which is a fairly capable mm-hmm. system. Uh, attack helicopters, transport helicopters, and, and Serbia is also purchasing drones, uh, UAVs from right. China, interestingly enough. Uh, does that uh, does that destabilize things in the region at all? Well, or? it certainly doesn't help. Okay. Um, now, Serbia is, in fact, a direct signatory of you know the Dayton Accords, mm-hmm. um, and there are um, broader considerations of, of um, how the militaries are to behave. Uh, and the, NATO does have a, a large number of programs as well to help look at these issues. Um, but it's a, it's a significant purchase and not one that's necessarily um, justified by Serbia's security needs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it would be intriguing to be able to dig down and see where um, the payoffs are. Well, Example. there there you go, right there. Because <laughs> I even noted that back in 99, how uh, it was sort of a, you know, the old term bakshish, right? Uh, Absolutely. It, it, it has a, a lot of play in that in that area. Uh, so w- what about other re- nations in the region? I mean, any of other ones sort of connected strongly to Russia? Um, by Putin's choice, I should say. By Putin's choice. Less so. Okay. Um the Iron Curtain was pretty bad to those other countries in the Balkans. and Well, again, Tito had pushed the Iron Curtain pretty much be back t- uh, toward uh, Moscow when he was in charge. Yeah. Uh, but it was drew, still strong in, in, in Romania and Bulgaria. It was still strong in Romania and Bulgaria. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but Romani- the Romanians and Russians historically don't get along. Mm-mm. And so there is a very... Um, I think there's a very strong affinity in, in Romania for the West and NATO. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, it's the yeah, it's, it's the Romanian president who uh, had served um, with the peacekeeping forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, and but in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Bosnia, in fact, uh, was in combat in Iraq. Okay. So he has fought on the side of on beha- on the side of NATO, the president of Romania. Yeah, so he he's got some cl- strong close affiliations. Yeah, strong with, affiliations with, with the NATO and and even EU and and close to the United States too as a result of that. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about these countries that d- do lean toward the West. Uh, how complicated is it for those nations that that are really working to align with Europe, with the EU, and even maybe with NATO? Uh, as they attempt to remain free from Russian influence. Uh, I'm sure Putin would love to further destabilize the Balkans, uh, in, involving uh, Russian intelligence operations in the, the politics of those countries. How, how much is that happening, the internal it's, affairs uh, of, those, of the Balkan states? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, let me take one example, and I'm going to go back yeah. to Montenegro. Because, uh, yeah, please do. Uh, a country close to my heart. I spent yeah. three years there. Yeah. In 2016, uh, they had parliamentary elections, and on the eve of parliamentary elections, um, the Montenegrin police and intelligence services broke up what they said was an attempted coup. Oh, okay. Um, with Russian, with the backing of Russian security services, intelligence services, um, and also a lot of participation by um, pro-Russian uh, Montenegrin politicians. Okay. Um, most notably, in my mind, is Andrea uh, Mandic. Now, um, the Montenegrin government proceeded forward and prosecuted the people they could get and tried the Russian intelligence officers in absentia. Okay. Uh, about a, a little over a dozen of them. They, they, so they better not come back to Montenegro on a tourist uh, visit? <laughs> well, um, they're, I believe that the in absentia convictions have not been vacated, but the convictions against the politicians in Montenegro themselves, those have been vacated. Oh, really? Okay. Um, the courts had, had ruled um, the way the trial court uh, ran was not in accordance with uh, the rules and regulations of a proper trial. Now, uh, this now means that um, the leaders of two parties who have been, who have been convicted of plotting a coup against the Montenegrin government, their convictions have been vacated, are now in the Montenegrin government. Oh, that's very interesting. 
But again, <laughs> with Russian backing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about kind of those security arrangements, the linkages between the Western-leaning uh, countries in the Balkan and uh, the EU-NATO uh, construct. Uh, how, how much are those countries trying to align militarily, for instance, with NATO, uh, buying NATO uh, weapon systems, that kind of thing? I mean, do you, do you see much of that when you take a look at the Oh, weapons? absolutely. Okay. Um, Romania has uh, recently upgraded its um, Air Force fighters. Okay. Um, it, they were they looked at the the Swedish fighters, but they also looked at the F thirty five, the F eighteen, the F sixteen. They have bought, I believe, they bought used F sixteens. Uh, so again, uh, there's a, that integration there. Um, but even more than equi- equipment purchases, because these are not large countries. No, no, they're very small. They're, they're very, very small, small. Yeah. and their militaries are very small. Right. Um, and it's difficult to afford a modern jet fighter right. when you're a small country. Right. What they have done is um, gone to NATO and said, how can we contribute to NATO's roles, especially extra-regional roles? Yep. So they look to specialize, right? They look to specialize, and they look to provide niche um, capabilities uh, to NATO. Yeah, like chemical, biological defense. Chemical, uh, biological defense, or even uh, as basic as we're going to create a light infantry. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, so let's press on a little bit. Uh, we we mentioned uh, earlier that the Republika Srpska, mm-hmm. the Bosnian Serb portion right. of the former Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, just voted to cede uh, from the larger Bosnia Herzegovina construct from the Dayton right. Accords. Now they've done it before, but there's a psychological impact. The more they do this, the more they sort of uh, stri- strike or strive to move away from that construct. What what are the security impacts of that decision if it's actually carried through. I mean, is the former Yugoslavia headed for more ethnic strife because of these kinds of things? What do you, what's your assessment? I would say that strife was going to stay at a lower level. Okay. You're, not, you're never going to see a resumption of the wars of 91-95 or Kosovo. Okay. I just don't, I don't see that happening. Um, cooler heads will prevail. Even. Cooler heads will prevail. The militaries are smaller. Oh, okay. Uh, that helps. Uh, in Bosnia, um, when they unified the militaries in 2005, one step they took was they broke up the mono-ethnic brigades. Okay. You now have uh, three brigades in Bosnia, for example. Uh, each has a Bosnian, a Croat, and a Serb battalion. Okay. And are they in- integrated battalions? or all the-, the battalions are not integrated. Okay. It's tough to get that to work. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and again, these battalions are, are distributed across the country. So, for example, if sir, if the IRS were to um, break with the state institutions and the state military, two thirds of their soldiers are in the federation, okay, the other entity. And within the IRS, two thirds of the soldiers in the IRS aren't theirs. So I have to tell you that that to me sounds like they learned some good lessons about how to live. Uh, relatively peacefully from Tito. <laughs> Absolutely. You were thinking exactly what I'm thinking. Uh, T- Tito was, was um, famous and notor- notorious for establishing a large barracks in the uh, downtown area of every major um, uh, regional capital. With, with uh, ethnic troops from other parts of the With country, ethnic troops from other parts. Yeah. So it looks like they've come to the conclusion that the only way they can make that security situation work is to take a lesson from their past. Correct. Wow, that's really interesting. What other security challenges do you see for the U.S. Uh, in the Balkans? I mean, how, how likely is it that the U.S. could get drawn back into a conflict in the region? If it's just something small, probably unlikely. But if, if uh, let's say, Putin succeeds in really causing more ethnic strife to come to a full-blown Knockdown. Are, are we going to go back into the Balkans? So oh, we're, we're, still, we're still there, of course. Sort of, yes. Yeah. I mean, the United States still has uh, participation in uh, K4, the Kosovo mm-hmm. uh, peacekeeping force. Yeah, that's much, much smaller than it was when you were Much smaller than it was. But it's still there. Yeah. Uh, and there is still the precedent of um, the more unilateral peacekeeping, like you saw in Macedonia, mm-hmm. where um, two battalions were de- deployed to deter Milosevic, one of which being a U.S. battalion. Okay. Um, and I think that's kind of the level you'd look at if we go back in, if things get to that level, which, I, which again, I don't see in the near future. Are there any scenarios that you could think of 
uh, that might sort of force, uh, say, President Biden's hand or, or a future president's hand to drive us to go back in there and in a sizable contingent? Um, again, I think a lot depends on how you, uh, Ukraine plays out. That's true. Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Transnistria. Right. Um, remember, that's adjacent now to Romania right. in the Balkans. Right. NATO member where the United States has a, uh, the first na- uh, new naval base in years, mm-hmm. uh, which was set up to help to provide the basis for uh, ballistic missile defense. Yeah, and that Black Sea coastal area of Ukraine is a heavily uh, Russian-speaking uh, region. Right. And that's part of what the what Putin and the, the Russian Duma passed many years ago, that all, all Russian-speaking people are citizens of Russia and deserve Russian protection. Correct. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's wrong to ignore Romania as being part of the Balkans. And so when, when you ask, is the United States going to go back into the Balkans? Yeah. I think Romania and Bulgaria are a big uh, part of that now. In, in a way to help defend them. To help defend them. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so, Alan, uh, what what sources might you suggest listeners read if they want to learn more about the history of the Balkans and, and why it really is such an important region? I mean, even if you look at uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he had an outsized focus on oh, everything that was happening in the Balkans from a, from a U.K. national security perspective. Uh, and and clearly, you know, we were involved deeply in the Balkans. We remain involved in the Balkans. But what what if people want to learn more about the Balkans' history and and to try to understand this more for themselves? Well, I, I know you like Balkan Ghosts. Yeah, that's a great book. That's a tremendous book. Um, it's it's kind of the new travel log up um, new 1990s, uh, updating the old uh, classic, uh, um, Gray Lamb Black Black Falcon, uh, which is from the 30s. Gray Lamb Black, Gray Lamb Black, Black Falcon. Black Falcon. Okay. Yeah, Gray Lamb Black, Black Falcon. All right. By a British travel writer, really. Massive, thick book. Um, I don't like that one so much. Uh, what I would recommend if someone's really trying to get a, an understanding of the Balkans, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be quick, right. uh, is Misha Galeni's, uh is a uh, British historian who has written a uh, exhaustive and well-written but long book on the Balkans called The Balkans. Okay. Uh, from the 19th century up until I think the most current edition runs to 2011. Okay, that's still that's still pr- relatively current then. Um, that's a, a great book. Um, and again, it's a question of uh, what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Sarajevo, on the uh, well, on the I keep thinking of the Sarajevo War because much of it took place there. But on the Bosnian War, there are a lot of uh, contemporary. Um, uh, books from the, from then, mm-hmm. um, to love thy neighbor uh, is, is a very good one. Um, it, giving the experience of of the war uh, in Bosnia, and there's a number of books like that, and there are other books that cover it from the experience of the peacekeepers. Okay, yeah, I, I can tell uh, our our listeners, and and you probably know this having read the Balkan Ghost yourself. I mean, it's, and I'm sure the Balkans that book probably covers this in great detail, but the amount of torture and slaughter that has taken oh. place in the Balkans between the different ethnic groups, targeting, you know, religious minorities, uh, uh, going after the Roma people. I mean, it's just awful what has happened in that region. Uh, I have to think that uh, if you're, you know, top-level political leadership in the EU or NATO, the last thing you want to see happen is more ethnic strife happen in the Balkans region. Right. Which, to me, as a strategy policy guy, says— Putin looks at that and says, hey, the more trouble I can stir up in the Balkans, the better. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and with the, uh, as you said, the um, the hurdles, the obstacles to foreign direct investment, if you're trying to make a profit, this opens up area f- uh, for, in this case, China. That's that's true. And we just talked about that earlier, uh, Chinese investment in uh, things in the Balkans already, mining and, and else, uh, other uh, business and sectors. It's an additional stressor and another way to uh, divide and conquer. Yeah, and China's doing it on a global scale right now. So uh, I'll, I'll let you sort of – I'll give you the, the floor. Any, you have a lot of experience looking at and living and working in the Balkans. So what else would you like to tell our listeners about the Balkans region? Anything important that we maybe haven't covered today? Um, well, the thing I find uh, uh, intriguing and, impo- and important, and it ties into, again, this whole question of tourism, uh, tourism took a hard hit in 2020 because of COVID. Yeah. And um, the Dalmatian coast really depends on that. And the Dalmatian it? coast really depends on that. And so I really can't recommend that, I can't recommend that anybody go to the, to, um, the Adriatic right now. Yeah. Even though the prices are really cheap. Right. <laughs> 
um, because the COVID, because these countries have had a really difficult time controlling COVID. Yeah. Uh, on a on a per capita basis, the infection rate um, in Montenegro is the second highest in the world. Oh my goodness. I did not know that. Uh, and similar problems exist across most of the Balkans. A lot of va- vaccine hesitancy. Really? Okay. Um, uh, because they don't trust their governments. And would you trust your government after the last 20, 20 30 years? Well, not only that, but if you look throughout the whole Cold War period. Uh, I think, and before that, yeah, right. You grow up with sort of this understanding that nothing that the government says can be trusted. And the the, the medical systems are, are not great. Um on on deaths, uh, one of the highest rates is in Bosnia. Okay, they th- these countries that all had tackled the initial waves pretty well, and we're all now worried about the third third wave. I believe here yeah. in the United States, right. yeah. they're worried about the fifth. Oh my goodness! Okay. Um, now after that clears up, after we get back to normal, um, oh my gosh, the Adriatic coast and even inland are some of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Yeah. And I would say that the people that I encountered and the people are great. Friendly. Yeah, they really are. Um, and even the people you think, oh, well, they're not going to like Americans. Well, they like you. Mm-hmm. They don't like the American government. They don't like the American government. <laughs> right? yeah, but exactly. they're happy to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I found that kind of around the world. Um, <laughs> and so, again, uh, once things change, I think it's it, the tourist writers are right. Yeah. Uh, you want to get to Kotor. You want to get Dubrovnik is overrun now. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to get down to those those coastlines. Uh, you want to go inland. The uh, biggest um, grand, the biggest canyon in Europe is in Montenegro, and it's o- the only canyon bigger is the Grand Canyon in the U.S. Yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing place to visit. Not that you and I are the tourist bureau for the Balkans, but uh, no. having, because we've been there, we we've seen it. It's just oh, an amazing place. It's so yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of uh, today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Alan Carlson, thank you so much for enlightening us on the current situation in the Balkans. I I suspect our listeners will start to pay a little closer attention to what's happening in the volatile region, uh, especially as the situation in in Ukraine kind of continues to fester. Uh, Like I mentioned before, I think, you know, if I were Putin, I'd try to light fires in the Balkans to to, uh, draw the attention of NATO and the EU uh, right onto their own front yard, and then maybe make my move in Ukraine if if I were choosing to do that. But, hey, that's just me. Uh, thanks again for, for making the drive down from Stillwater. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Uh, Thank you for joining us for our first show of our second year here on National Security Week on KYMN Radio. We'll be back next week with another edition. Our guest will be Professor Raymond Kuo from the think tank RAND, and we'll be discussing the South China Sea. So you won't want to miss that show, believe me. Have a great finish to your week and a fantastic weekend ahead. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week. A weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.